electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's Essential Morning Show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today on Squawk Pod, the NASDAQ 9000, a new record just days before a new decade. It wasn't that long ago near the beginning of my Wall Street career when I remember the NASDAQ at 5,000. A lively conversation about Huawei and its ties to the Chinese government with the telecom giant's chief security officer. In the US. I disagree based on what I've read and based on what I've seen. One of the reasons why I, to some degree, side with Becky on this is that I have yet to hear Huawei explicitly say, you know what, there's a problem. And another installment of our 2019 market debut series. Today, precision oncology company Turning Point Therapeutics. Those stories plus a billionaire gift exchange that we can sign up for? I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. It's Friday, December 27th, 2019. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue it, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is out today. Our guest host this morning is Ed Lee, New York Times corporate media reporter and CNBC contributor. And good morning. Morning. It's good to see you. And Andrew. Good to see you guys. Hello, yes. hello. How does everybody do on their Christmas Day? Christmas Day. Uh, lots of you presents. Know, lots of presents. Tree. Lots of presents. Kiddos. What was the Best family? Present. Best present? Best present. Can you disclose? I, uh, I tried to get Santoli and MCC to do this yesterday. They wouldn't play along. I, I think the kids got some great presents. The, have you heard of the Countercade? It's like a giant. A Countercade? Like it's an arcade game that's oh. about this big. Okay. Pac-Man. So we got one of those. Oh, you mean like cool. all these the sort yeah, of old games that you play that like on a console? This, this one's actually oh, that's a like Pac-Man fun. one. And yeah. we got a mini Galago one. I would have so loved something cool. like that. That would have yeah. been great for me. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. No, it, my best present was I think I had an hour off to myself. I took a little nap. That was probably Awesome. We don't exchange present. gifts yeah. with the adults. Yeah, this no, is, the adults we don't do it. It's for the yeah. kids, yeah. right? You? What about you? What's going on? I got. We do a uh, under twenty-five or under thirty-dollar exchange for adults, and oh, I got. I haven't because I, I lost mine in Davos actually two or three years ago. I got my. You know that crazy little fur hat I like. Oh, remember yeah. that. Hat? <laughs> Yeah. So I got a new one of those. Oh, good. You're going to break it out again in Davos? I'll break it out again. You look like you're like <laughs> in a sidecar of a motorcycle. You know those sort of like with the flaps? I know, I know. But little, yours, I remember yours was really big with yes. like a high, yes. yeah, like a Russian style. Yes, you know. I lost it. He looks like a cool kid wearing it. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so cool. Uh, I will tell you, I, I'll out him, or, or maybe I'll out myself. Brian Williams, I'll never forget. I was walking into 30 Rock many years ago wearing the hat. And uh, he said, you know, they make those for men too. <laughs> That was good. So, here you have it. First up today, the big business story of the morning, dare I say, the week. 
U.S. stocks hit a record on Thursday, pushing the Nasdaq Composite Index above 9,000 for the first time ever. It's the 10th straight closing high for the Nasdaq, which makes this its longest streak since July of 1997. The Dow Jones Industrial Average also hit a record at Thursday's close, and so did the S&P 500, which was led higher by Amazon, the best performer in that index. But what's powering these gains? It looks like a post-holiday rally from some of the market's biggest retailers. But as you'll hear, it's been a long journey with a few other key movers. The Nasdaq hitting and closing above the 9,000 point level for the first time ever. The index getting a push over the milestone level on some positive news from Amazon. But it's been quite a road that included the dot-com bubble in 2000, the post-9-11 recession, the financial crisis, and the bull run that brings us to where we are today. Dom Chu joins us now from CBC headquarters. He's got a look at how we got here. Dom. All right. So, Andrew, it wasn't that long ago near the beginning of my Wall Street career when I remember the Nasdaq at 5,000, because that was where it peaked out at just around March of 2000. After 9-11, that recession low that we hit was around 1114 only to rally back to the lows that we saw during the great financial crisis of 1269. Fast forward to where we are here, 8,000 was just back in August of last year, and here we are at 9,000. So that move has been not without bumps along the way. Two parts of the market, guys, that have helped lead the way higher in that March to 9,000 for the NASDAQ composite. Semiconductors and software helping Becky to power that move between 8 and 9,000. We'll see if those are leadership groups when it goes from 9 to 10,000 at some point. Who knows when that'll be, Becky? Back over to you. Um, thank you. Did you get anything good for Christmas? I did. I got, you know what, I got an LED headlamp because, you know what, these what? early out. So, so here's what it is. Yeah, I like these, those. You know I know what you're talking about. You, you know awesome. exactly, right. Yeah, so, I so in know the what city, this is when too. You're, when you're, you're lit up, you got street lights and everything. Like For me, I live in the suburbs. Yep, yeah, I love so it. It's right up here. I, I have it. My oh, wife my gave me one so I can walk out of my driveway when it's dark outside. And look really get cool. Get to my car. Well, I can just light things up. I mean, 2.30 <laughs> in the morning, 3 in the morning, it's tough to kind of go outside. It's Are you going to use it on you? Are you going to wear the headlamp on the way to the office? That's how you're going to use it? I have. I have, well, I don't need it on the way to the office because we're, we're well lit in Englewood Cliffs. But, right. you know, when I go home at night, sometimes it's still dark. He to needs go it to for my, the golf you know, course. Right. I, well, that's yes, I'm playing golf in the dark. So yes, right, yes that, you so. are, Dom. Hey, Dom, can you wear it in the office one time just so that we could see what it will? I have it with me. Oh, yes. Because I work to work today. You know, I had to get out to my car. <laughs> I will wear it whenever it is that I come up. Oh, back so you guys. wear it out of the house to the to the car. Yeah, because it's dark outside. So I wear it out. I go down the walkway. You need space. For your hands? Is yeah, hands free. Hands yeah, hands free. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I just wear it. It's, it's, it's a headband. Yeah, right. well, I know what it is. Hey, Dom. I thought I could see yes. you walking at exactly. night, going for, to a jog. With for it. anybody who didn't know it already, Dom's a father. <laughs> I am a father. Yeah, and yes. That's a dad gift. It that is. is certainly a dad gift. I think it was from my daughter, actually, even though she's only two that's and a half years old. That's a good gift from your daughter. We yes. like it, and we look forward to seeing it. That's I, a good tease, too. I will wear it too. in the next hour for you guys. Just promises, promises. A quick update because I know you're on the edge of your seat. Dom did wear the headlamp on air for a truly timeless photo of our markets reporter Dominic Chu in his brand new headlamp. Check out her Twitter page, Squawk CNBC. New this morning, the South China Morning Post reporting the U.S. and China are working to finalize the text of the phase one agreement which will run up to 85 pages in English and cover issues ranging from um, IP protection to agricultural purchases. The length of that document reportedly now down from a 150-page draft agreement that was on the table when the talks collapsed in May, so maybe they have a good editor. Uh, the big <laughs> issue remains... Or maybe they just don't have much they're going to agree on. Uh, that may be, <laughs> too. Two. Remains how, uh, 
how to word China's commitment to buy U.S. agricultural products and whether the country can achieve the $200 billion figure touted by the Trump administration. Uh, we did report yesterday that soybean purchases were on the rise, so that was uh, a good sign. But I think it's still a big number to get to, how they're actually going to achieve that. Yeah, that's it's a good question. Uh, the other story that's really interesting on China this morning, the Financial Times has a front-page story talking about how China's corporate, corporate debt. debt defaults. Yep. Uh, have risen to new record levels, too. $18.6 billion in 2019, growth declining to a 30-year low. So that just gives you a little more insight about what the pressure has been on China for some of these issues, too. The question is, what happens next year? What happens next year? Vaults? I mean, they've been trying to transition more to a consumer-based economy instead of right. an export one. And no longer have the government necessarily backing every private company that's yeah, out there. But if you're pulling all the levers for all these things, you can't, you know, you're juggling, or another metaphor is you're juggling all these balls, and, you know, some of these are going to, they're going to start falling. Yeah, and which has been happening this year already. Sports betting providing a big boost to casinos in Atlantic City. They're now on pace to generate $460 million in sports gambling revenue by the end of the year. That would be up 66% from a year ago. We know we know a guy who might be helping with that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Joe Kernan. Yeah. Yeah. Can't do it right now. He's, he's not he's, in New Jersey. He's so taking he bets himself. He's, is he he's, running a book? He's running a book on DraftKings or one of these sites <laughs> he is. Well, you know, he only had five hundred dollars that he so put in. So. Sports betting was seen as a way for sports media to really cash in, yes. especially yeah. as yes. you know whether decline in general television viewing or, or online media altogether. Um, the ESPNs of the world, they're, it's great for advertising, certainly, mm-hmm. but it's not. Uh, they're not. De- they're not doing. They're not running sports books themselves. Look, I think that a, is the next study, potential a, move. P- potentially, right. but from right. a case study, Joe does it because he loves watching the games. He's trying to recreate March Madness, where he actually cares about these games. Where the, now he has something writing on it, so he actually watches every game. I and think the in-game betting is that's where the real money comes right. in, right? Where from from touchdown to touchdown, you could make a make a trade. Basically, is what it comes down to. So, anyway, that's the next thing to look for. Is these the media companies are they going to run books themselves at some point instead of just being a repository for advertising. So. All right, we should tell you about another story. Bill Gates. Love this story. I'm sorry. In an 81-pound package to his Secret Santa. Reddit hosts an annual Secret Santa gift exchange on the platform where users get matched with strangers across the globe and send gifts. Well, Bill Gates has been participating since 2013, and this year he was matched with a Michigan woman who received a big box of gifts, all tailed, tailored to information posted on her profile. Some of the gifts included a hammock, Oreos, a manuscript edition of The Great Gatsby signed by Gates, and toys for the user's cats. He also made a donation to the American Heart Association in memory of the woman's mother who had died earlier this year. Great story. I never knew he was doing this. I don't know why this is the first time I've ever heard this, but it does make me want to sign up for the Secret Santa. Yeah, we should all sign up for this, the billionaire exchange. That's really cool. (laughs) What's most touching is that he, he did this tailored to right. her interests, particularly the donation to... It's not like they're writing a list of, here's what I want. It's, no. here's the person, somebody, you somebody look up there. Somebody puts time and puts some effort into so it. So you want to make sure your social media profile is updated correctly. If right. you're doing this or at least correctly for what you'd like for to you, get. <laughs> exactly, right. Cheese will be next. Up next on Squawk Pod. It sounds nice for you to say these things, but Huawei has been one of the worst transgressors of stealing intellectual property. So it sounds a little hollow coming well, from a Huawei representative. Well, and actually, that's not true. It, it is true. Becky and Andrew ask Huawei USA's chief security officer about his company's ties to the Chinese government and whether Huawei poses a national security threat to the United States. We'll be right back. 
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. The next story on today's podcast, the world's top provider of telecom equipment, Chinese company Huawei. Huawei's history with the United States goes back nearly two decades, and it's been fraught with tension pretty much from the start. The drama is mostly rooted in a concern that Huawei might have spyware or backdoors in its products that can be exploited by the Chinese government. President Trump effectively cut the company off from American supply chains in May of this year. And Secretary of State Mike Pompeo spoke about that decision and the threat that Huawei poses to our country on Squawk Box in September. The decision that was made to list Huawei had an enormous national security component to it. Uh, The company is deeply tied not only to China, but to the Chinese Communist Party. And that connectivity, the existence of those connections, puts American information that crosses those networks at risk. Former White House insider Steve Bannon has spoken passionately, as always, on Huawei as well. I think Huawei is essentially a dirty bomb inside industrial democracies. All the while, Huawei assures the public that its products are no cause for alarm. This week, the story unfolds further. In a review of Huawei's financial statements, the Wall Street Journal discovered $75 billion in Chinese state support. Here's Andrew kicking off today's conversation with Huawei USA's chief security officer, Andy Purdy. A new report out from the Wall Street Journal saying that Huawei had access to as much as $75 billion in state support from the Chinese government, including loans, grants, and tax breaks. While we're responding to that article, calling it based on false information, joining us right now to talk about this regulation and so much more, a company that's uh, probably been one of the biggest stories in the news, in the business world at least, and geopolitically over the past year, Andy Purdy, Chief Security Officer at Huawei. Good morning to you. Thank you. Good morning. Um, so let's, t- let's talk about this article, uh, which I know the company believes is false, but the idea that the company has effectively been subsidized uh, by the government. You say it's false. Be- why? Well, when you see the kind of information that the government gave to the Wall Street Journal for this story, you understand why some of the politicians in this country have such a negative view of Huawei, that we have to try to make sure that we base things on the facts. And one of the reasons we want to talk with the U.S. government is so that we can talk about what the facts are. The fact is, and you saw in that article that right. they said Cisco has like $45 billion in, in assistance. Mm-hmm. Um, the number $75 billion for us is, draftly, is, is drastically overstated. The fact is there are lines of credit MOUs were issued between 2005 and 2011, and we gave this information to the House Intelligence Committee, and a tiny fraction of that was ever used for loans from customers. So to take the gross figure of the credit lines is really not fair to talk about that as being assistance from the government. Why? But why should the credit lines not be considered assistance from the government? I I mean, I I get that, that Cisco and others get tax subsidies and other things, but they don't get lines of credit from the government. Well, we didn't get the lines of credit from the government. The lines of banks, but yeah. The the lines of credit were made available by the banks to customers. So then the question was, are customers going to take advantage of the lines of credit to buy our equipment? And what we're saying is a tiny fraction of the 40-some billion they're talking about was actually used to buy our equipment. But it, it's your equivalent of the Exim Bank. I mean, if, you're, if your customers are able to take out lines of credit and it's there, if, why did it exist if 
you didn't need it. But the point is, it's a tiny amount. When you look at the amount of, of, of investment in our company mm-hmm. over that, uh, that period of time, a, it was less than like $3 billion was used to purchase our products. So when you're looking at like $175 billion in purchases, $3 billion in purchases right. supported by lines of credit is a, is a, is a minor issue. Um, let me ask you about the larger issue. Uh, we're in the midst of this, this trade deal. First of all, do you have any insight, directly or indirectly, into what is in the phase one trade deal when it comes to IP protection and security issues that may very well relate to your company? No, but I think in terms of everything that matters to our country, those kinds of provisions have to be in there. And as I discussed at the United Nations here in early December, having objective ways that folks can see whether there's theft of intellectual property, forced technology transfer, those are critical to all of us. So I hope those things are going to be in in the agreement. Andy, you you realize you work for Huawei and they've blatantly ripped off and stolen all kinds of intellectual property where it's very obvious they've done it. You know, the statements sometimes and the stuff you've ripped off, it's been directly there, the existing company's information on that. I mean, it sounds nice for you to say these things, but Huawei has been one of the worst transgressors of stealing intellectual property. So it sounds a little hollow coming well, from a Huawei representative. Well, and actually, that's not true. When you it, look it at the true. facts of the decades of litigation bought by companies and against companies, Numerous companies have been involved in these issues. Okay, so no. your point is other people are really bad at this, too. Other companies are really bad at this. But Huawei has been a prime offender of ripping off intellectual property. I understand that's your position. I understand that's the position of the U.S. government. That's not the facts. It, when you look at the objective information and you analyze those cases, and you look the at Wall the fact Street that Journal no court has, has ordered articles. us to, to may, pay a penalty, the Wall Street and many Journal of those has, agreements has that are in the MOU, there was no settlement. There was no money paid. Th- the Wall Street Journal has gone through and chronicled where you guys have completely ripped off stuff, and it still has the company you ripped it off from in the stuff that you're selling. Like, it still has their information and their headers in it. There are instances... Are you saying that that hasn't happened? There are instances of wrongdoing by us and other companies, and any instance of that is wrong. I'm saying when you, when you conflate it to be this gigantic thing, that's not true. I, it's just not true. I disagree based on what I've read and based on what I've seen. So, and, and your idea of what's wrong and how much it is, like, okay, you quantify it for me. If you're telling me I'm wrong and how I'm quali- quantifying this, explain to me where, when it's happened and when it hasn't. Well, I'm, I'm saying that there is a record of, of, of litigation around the world and involving numerous companies where there have been settlements. The, our, act, our action in, in filing for patents, and, and we've spent $6 billion in purchasing the rights of other people's patents around the world, cross-licensing deals. We are invested in, in the patent protection. And it, so there's two issues. At here. this point. There's two issues. One is uh, the intellectual property issue, which you guys just sparred about. And then there's the national security issue. The first, just to end the conversation on intellectual property for a moment. What are the things you think the company has explicitly done, let's say, in the past three years? Because I I recognize a lot of the stuff that was accounted for in the Wall Street Journal took place uh, oftentimes three or four or five years ago. But where where you've implemented significant changes in the way the company even operates. Well, we have implemented very dramatic programs for cybersecurity assurance across our entire no, supply chain. No, I'm not talking chain. about cybersecurity. I'm talking about intellectual property, meaning, meaning I have yet to... The, the, one of the reasons why I, I, to some degree, side with Becky on this is that I have yet to hear Huawei explicitly say, you know what, there's a problem. 
Maybe other companies have the same problem we have, if that's what your position is. But there's a problem, and we want to fix it. We think it's wrong. We're going to do X, Y, and Z. Internally, we have put X, Y, and Z into place in our company to change the way we behave going forward. I think that's a great suggestion to be more transparent about exactly what we are doing. What we see internally with the kinds of internal compliance we've talked about before that the United States is great on, the ethics and compliance programs, we're doing those things internally. So we have the internal publication, the internal training, the internal testing, the sanctioning of employees that do wrongdoing. We see the example of Ericsson. There are a lot of companies out there that have to tighten up, but you make a good point. We're going to run out of time, but uh, on national security, is there anything that you think, do you ever say to yourself, if I could just do this either with my boss or with the Chinese government, I could persuade the world that we're not a national security threat. What would that be? It would be to get the European Union and Germany to sign on to standards and testing by independent, verifiable organizations to demonstrate that no products have been tainted. No products have backdoors implanted, and that needs to be done for all products. Okay. Um, Andy, it is a larger conversation. We do hope to have you back. We always appreciate uh, your, your, your candor and uh, your interest in having this dialogue. So thank you. You're welcome. Happy holidays. Coming up on Squawk Pod, we're talking startups and cancer treatment technologies with Turning Point Therapeutics CEO, Dr. Athena Kantoriatis. If you were diagnosed with cancer and over the age of 50, the likelihood of you dissolving your life savings within two years of your diagnosis was over 40%. That is a terrible statistic. Back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. This is Squawk Pod. Music, please. Earlier this week, we walked you through a few of 2019's newest public companies and how they got there, namely Slack and CrowdStrike. Today, we're talking about another 2019 market entrant, Turning Point Therapeutics. Turning Point is one of 70 healthcare IPOs this year, the most of any market sector. It began trading on the NASDAQ in April, and it's done spectacularly well. It's one of the top five performing IPOs of 2019, and not just in healthcare, but across all sectors. Equally as impressive is the doctor who's taken the company public. CEO Athena Contoriatis is a first-time CEO, and she broke the company into the public markets less than a year after she assumed that role. This next conversation you'll hear is her interview on Squawk Box from a few weeks ago. Joe Kernan leads the segment because, fun fact, Joe has a master's from MIT, where he worked at the MIT Center for Cancer Research. He studied molecular, cellular, and developmental biology before he studied the markets, but... That's a story for another time. For now, here he is with Turning Point Therapeutics CEO and President. 
As we wind down 2019, we're taking stock of some of the big unicorn debuts this year. Uh, some companies struggled post-IPO. Smile Direct Club is down 65% from its listing. But some others have thrived, and biotech's been one bright spot. And one of the brighter of the bright spots is Turning Point Therapeutics, up almost uh, 200% from its listing price. And uh, when you figure out math, 200% means it's tripled. Doesn't mean it's just doubled. I figured that out. Join us now to discuss that journey in the path ahead. Dr. Athena Contori Adas, she is uh, CEO of Turning Point Therapeutics. $18, uh, I think raised 160 some uh, billion with a, a market cap valuation of about 500 million, now almost 2 billion. So that, that's been a very successful uh, debut year for you, uh, doctor. Well, good morning, Joe, Andrew, and Becky. Thank you very much for having us. It's such a macro morning. So it's, it's our pleasure to be here. Yes. So it, it, it better than I'm just wondering w- when the IPO priced since then, have there been clinical um, validations of some of the drugs or or has it just been market sentiment that's tripled the stock price? Yeah, absolutely. I think you, you acknowledge the fact that there are many IPOs that were done this year across all sectors, including biotech that unfortunately have not uh, succeeded in many ways. You know, we were very mindful. It's something you talk about all the time in terms of that last round of private financing. Uh, we brought, you know, a valuation, I think, to shareholders that was a good deal. We were very much focused on aftermarket performance. And unlike a lot of other companies, we did make steady progress. We initially started with one clinical asset. We've now progressed to three clinical assets. And we talked about this last time, but this is all based on our scientific platform of tyrosine kinase inhibitors for cancer. So, yeah, it's, it's precision oncology. Now, what does that mean? It, 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 you're looking in the precision, the adjective there. What does that refer to, the, the mechanism of action of, of the kinase inhibitors that, that you're developing, or you're, you're focusing on very specific um, cancers that may not, they may be somewhat rare, or, or do they have, does it apply to, can, to a, a much larger patient population than just some rare cancers? Yeah, our platform is predominantly focused on one of the largest cancers, which is non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, now, it is a subpopulation. When you think about precision medicine, it's specifically targeting subpopulations of lung cancer, okay. but also colon cancer and other cancers. And so it's precisely targeting the kinases with oral drugs uh, that are very well tolerated. And it's a field, tyrosine kinase inhibitors have been around for many years, going back to 2001. So... When you're looking at someone with this type of cancer, did you say non-small cell? Non-small cell. That's correct. Uh, do we know the genetic profile of the people that respond to, to your uh, compounds? We do. And one of the ways that our story differentiated, and I think, again, that's a testament to the success of the IPO, is a differentiated story tackling treatment resistance. And essentially what that means and right. is a patient's been treated Unfortunately, that initial therapy has now failed them, and they're looking for another option. And so our oral drugs would tackle a specific genetic change that is now tested through genetic profiling of tumors, which is becoming more and more standard practice. So the, the tumor mutates around the initial treatment, and, and, then it, uh, and then you use something that would have worked at the beginning or you use after or the kinase inhibitor works after the mutation? Would it have worked alongside the initial drug? Maybe it should have gone alongside it instead of after it, uh, it mutated around it. 
Yeah, I think that's a very good point. One of the things with our lead asset, and again, our IPO had clinical data. So many IPOs that are coming out have very strong science, maybe a potentially a successful management team, but they don't have clinical validation of their science. We had that with our lead asset, and our lead asset, we believe, is a best-in-class asset. So that means that it could be used first, to your point. It should not necessarily just be held for a patient that's already, uh, unfortunately, has a therapy that's failing them. Well, I know you've got some, uh, some comments and opinions on how we should cap some drug prices or whether we should cap them at all and what, which drug plan... Uh, whether it's Pelosi's or what, what the uh, Kevin Brady, some others are looking at, we don't want to hurt innovation, and we need to, to, to tread lightly because there's a big potential in a lot of these, a lot of these companies and the drugs they're developing. Yeah, you know, first off, I was happy to see that the new FDA commissioner is an oncologist. We're very much focused in cancer drug development. We do not have commercial drugs yet, but clearly it's a space that we're monitoring. I think to the point you made, there are those that will definitely say it would stifle innovation if the current uh, bill continues to go through, obviously pass through the House. Uh, my perspective is much bigger than that. Uh, I read an article last week that, unfortunately, in just under 10 million Americans, if you were diagnosed with cancer and over the age of 50, the likelihood of you dissolving your life savings within two years of your diagnosis was over 40%. That is a terrible statistic. So to me, much bigger than just the drug pricing aspect. Okay. It's not just that. It's rare diseases, too. And we're going to talk to Scott Gottlieb, the Orphan former FDA commissioner, and, uh, about that later this morning. Well, as, as we get better, is the, yeah. is these, you need to find ways to push funding to get into these things. Otherwise, you're not going to find it. It's expensive when medicine, we get better and better at doing these things, but it's not cheap. And, and you know, we're going to face a point, if everybody lives to 95, um, we're going to have to figure out a way. And I hope we do. Actually, not, 95, 100 five would be better for me. But anyway, doctor, uh, thank you. And we'll hopefully see you again. Turning point. Yeah. Thank you so much again for having us this morning. You're welcome. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening this week. If you listen every day or you want to start, please subscribe to Squawk Pod. It's free everywhere. And tell us what you think in the ratings and comments. That helps other listeners find us. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. To watch the full three-hour TV show. It's a raucous, rollicking thrill ride. It is, honestly. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. We'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a great holiday weekend. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.